I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. And I'm Dale Denwalt. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed two institutions to their breaking point. Omicron variant infections have surged through Oklahoma, thinning the ranks at both hospitals and schools. and sometimes even looks like a war zone. Cases have risen so rapidly, we have to care for patients in hallways, sometimes closets. Patients have been waiting more than 24 hours for an ICU bed to open. Let's first get an update from the Oklahoman's health reporter, Dana Branham. You wrote a story this week that started with this sobering line. You wrote, Oklahoma City hospitals are in crisis again. What do you mean by that? I think that hospitals are really at a breaking point again. Um, I don't think that's hyperbole to say. Um, Obviously, these past two years have been very difficult for healthcare workers um, just trying to deal with surge after surge surge um, when they already had staffing shortages and just the, the pressures of the pandemic have only worsened that. And so this time, I think what's different is that we have this Omicron variant, which is so contagious, and we're just seeing huge, huge numbers of people being infected. We just haven't seen that before at any other point in the pandemic. And so just like everyone else, a lot of healthcare workers are getting infected too. Um, and that is just one more layer on the things that are really stressing their staffing and their ability to take care of people. So we saw Oklahoma City's four major hospital systems come together this week to basically sound the alarm. So Dana, what exactly are they asking for? And did they have any words for the leaders in state government? Yeah, so I'd say they're asking for the same kind of things they've been asking for all along. Um, They want people to wear their masks out in public, to stay home when they get sick, um, try to avoid crowds and wash their hands, um, and definitely get vaccinated and get boosted. Because I think we kind of understand now that the vaccine is not going to necessarily keep us from getting infected, but it can keep us out of the hospital. So we're still seeing that it's about 75% of, of COVID patients in the hospital are unvaccinated. And so they're, of course, still really stressing um, the need to get more people vaccinated since our our state's vaccination rates have stayed consistently behind national averages. I did ask the health leaders who talked to us um, what kind of they've told us individuals what they what they need and how we can respond and help them but what did they want from their state and local leaders and what they're asking for is just consistent messaging they want health leaders um, state leaders local leaders to align with them on the message that vaccines masks um, distancing things like that all of these mitigation strategies that we've heard about since March 2020, that those are the ways to get out of this. The actual messages that we currently um, are trying to share could be made louder uh, with the right amount of alignment from um, from state leadership. The plea from our local hospital system seems to be as urgent, if not more urgent, than when the Delta variant swept through the state in late summer and fall of last year. What factors have made this situation with Omicron so dire? for healthcare providers? I would say it is the transmissibility of this particular variant that is um, creating this situation. And I think it's happening on a couple different levels. Um, Like 
like we were talking about earlier, because it's spreading so easily and so quickly, um, way more people are coming into contact with COVID than previous surges. So um, we're seeing these huge numbers of people that need to get tested so that they know if they're infected or not, so they can go back to work or go back to school. Um, So huge numbers of people getting tested and huge positivity rates. So all of those are kind of just exponentially increasing. Um, And so that is putting a ton of pressure on testing sites, which then get backed up and and there's delays in trying to find a test. And so one major pressure point I was hearing from the hospitals um, over the past couple weeks is just that people are coming into the ERs with mild symptoms. They're they're not particularly super sick, uh, but they really need a COVID test to get back to whatever they need to do in their lives. Um, And so that's clogging up the ERs. Um, which then makes it kind of hard to to triage patients and determine who's really sick and who just needs a test and who needs to be admitted and kind of so on from there. The other piece that we've mentioned before is that how many healthcare workers are sick as well and having to miss work and so how that makes it difficult for them to have enough um, staffed beds to admit people. And so I think it was really shocking this week, the hospital system said that uh, kind of across all four of them, they estimated that it was about a thousand workers out, um, either because they're sick or because they've got sick kids or all, all sorts of reasons, but just kind of underscoring that they're going through the same struggles that a lot of families are and um, aren't able to be at work in, at the bedside. And so um, that's another piece of the puzzle. And I think the last piece is just that we hear a lot about how the Omicron variant is milder or that it just doesn't cause as severe illness as the Delta variant. Um, And what I keep hearing from health experts is that that is true to an extent, uh, but there are people who are still at high risk who are going to need hospital care. And so when you have these huge, huge totals of people sick and people infected, then you're going to end up with high numbers of people that need hospital care just because there are so many people sick that kind of the odds of one of them needing hospital care goes up. So all of those factors, I think, are, are what makes this particular surge um, very challenging for the healthcare system. Yeah, just to put that um, somewhat into context, we're a little bit more than halfway through January and Oklahoma already recorded the most COVID cases of any month in this pandemic since They started counting cases back in March 2020. Do we know when this surge will peak? Um, Not exactly, uh, but we did hear from um, the interim health commissioner, Keith Reed, this week um, that kind of looking at forecasting models um, and also looking at patterns of how cases have gone up and gone down in other states and other, other parts of the country that we can expect to see our peak soon, um, but he didn't give a more specific timeline on that. So it's hard to say if soon means next week, the week after, but it's also one of those things where you can't really tell that you've peaked until you're past it. So it's like, if if we're at that right now, and I don't know that we are, but we won't be able to tell until more time has passed. And just a quick follow-up, you reported that even if cases peak and go down sometime soon, the strain on hospitals could continue for weeks after that point. How was that explained? Yeah, so um, the way that's that that health experts talk about that is 
anytime that there's a rise in cases, it takes a while for the kind of corresponding rise in hospitalizations to show up in in the hospital systems because it just takes people a little while from when they first get sick to start needing hospital care. Um, so that's kind of where that lag comes from. That same thing in previous surges also happens with deaths when we see our hospitalizations go way up. It takes a little while, uh, but but then the death rates also go up as well. So I don't know if we'll see that with this particular surge, um, but that's that's kind of where those lags, how those work. Hospitals aren't the only institutions that are at their breaking point. Nuria, you've been covering the challenges that schools are having. We haven't seen this many schools shut their doors since the early days of the pandemic, and you reported that more than half of Oklahoma schools announced closings in just the first two weeks of January. That's half of Oklahoma schools. What is different about the closures this time around compared to when the pandemic first kicked off? Yeah, I have to give credit to uh, State Impact Oklahoma. The tracking that they've done on how many schools are closing and where has been remarkable. Um, So I definitely have to give the credit to them for for reporting on that. But in terms of the difference, uh, I think The key difference here is back in March 2020, similar to what we saw last week where we started seeing one district close, another district close, and then it started to kind of waterfall and cascade. And then the final domino was that everybody closed. It was a state mandated closure for all schools in in the state of Oklahoma. The State Department of Ed said that's not going to happen this time. There's not going to be a state mandated closure. Um, But I think the primary difference in terms of why these closures are happening is back in March 2020, it was purely preventative. I mean, we were first um, wandering into the the unknown of this virus. We didn't know what it was going to bring, what it was going to look like. So it was more of a preventative measure to close schools at that time. The reason schools are closing now is because they have no other choice. I mean, they just do not have enough adults to function. Um, they don't have enough adults to teach, to transport students, to feed students, um, and and, uh, schools have reached a breaking point at which they said, look, if we can't operate, then we need to send everybody home. We just need people to recover. We need that time for people to get out of quarantine and to to recuperate. I I think uh, Oklahoma City Public Schools Superintendent Sean McDaniel put it the best and the most bluntly when he said, this is a manpower issue and we are out of options. Um, So we saw more than half of the school districts and charter schools in the state close over the first two weeks of January, but most of them happened last week. Um, and then another little difference, I, I would say, is just how quickly those closures happened. Um, just to give an example, on Monday of last week, Oklahoma City Public Schools said that they were not considering a district-wide closure. They were just going to do it one class at a time, one grade at a time, one school at a time. Two days later, they had to close the entire district down. They, they very rapidly realized that an overwhelming number of employees were not going to be able to come into work. Um, so I'd say the quickness in which these um, closures have come about um, and the reasons for why they've happened are the key differences here. And so this week, Governor Kevin Stitt signed an executive order um, that he hoped would address the staff shortages that we're seeing in schools. You mentioned uh, the biggest problem is, is having um, teachers in the classroom and, and bus drivers and, and people to serve food. Um, and uh, the, the governor um, introduced uh, an executive order to try to help alleviate that. I'm authorizing the state agencies to allow uh, their employees to help keep kids 
um, in school by substitute teaching all across the state. How does his plan work? So the governor announced an executive order on Tuesday that basically authorizes uh, employees of state agencies to substitute in schools without having to take a day off work, without having to sacrifice their pay or, or affecting their benefits. They they would receive um, their, their day's pay as usual, but instead of going to work at the Department of Transportation or, or what whatever agency they work for, they, they could go and substitute in a school. Um, his executive order did say they have to substitute teach, so I don't think we'll be seeing a lot of state employees driving a school bus or working in a cafeteria. Um, but his his executive order was simply to allow more people to more easily step into a substitute role because a substitute shortage has been ongoing. I mean, throughout this pandemic, that's we've been hearing about that for months and months and months. Um, and, you know, up until this point, um, it's been manageable. Uh, but now with the surge, the number of teacher absences have been far greater than the number of substitutes that a lot of these schools have access to. Just for example, OKCPS um, had 200 teacher slots that were unfilled uh, earlier this week, and they have 75 substitutes in their substitute pool. Um, so you can fill in 75 of those open teaching positions, and then the rest, you kind of have to just get the school counselor to go cover a class. You have to get uh, some of the front office staff to go cover a class. I mean, you're just, the principal is in the cafeteria serving food to kids. I mean, it's really getting all optional adults, you know, who, who are there to just fulfill all of these open roles that, that the regular employee can't because they're at home with COVID. Um, so the governor, his plan focuses exclusively on, on substitute teachers. It doesn't address the, the root of the problem, which is the spread of COVID-19. I do have a question for Dana, though, since we're talking about children and students, um, what impact has this surge had on pediatric hospital patients? Yeah, so unfortunately, um, we're seeing some of the highest ever numbers of pediatric hospitalizations for COVID. Um, so today, that the day we're recording is Thursday, um, and the health department recorded um, 73 pediatric hospitalizations, which is the highest number we've seen during any surge. Um, Oklahoma Children's Hospital has said that they're dealing with their their all-time high in pediatric COVID patients. So it's it's definitely hitting kids hard. Obviously, most kids are not going to need to go to the hospital. Most kids are going to be fine and recover at home. Um, but there are more kids this time around that are needing to be in the hospital. Dr. Bratzler, Dr. Dale Bratzler, I think I remember him mentioning during a press conference this week that mitigation strategies within schools tend to make those schools a safer environment, um, you know, because those are some of the places where you, if there are policies in place, because in many schools there aren't, but in the schools where there is consistent masking, uh, where they do enforce quarantines, where they do, um, you know, do air filtration, um, those tend to be some of the safest places that someone can be, but it's when people step outside 
of the schoolhouse or outside of wh- whatever place that they their workplace wherever they go um, that's when uh, you know some of the the problem occurs um, I, I don't know how much hospital uh, officials spoke to that I know school district officials spoke to that saying we can't control what people do when they leave school um, but I don't know if uh, hospital officials also added on top of that not quite but I know that what I keep hearing come up, especially from some of the pediatric um, specialists and the um, the folks who really focus on the children's hospital, is that there's nothing that would, I mean, a lot of schools, like you said, don't have policies to require masks or other things that can prevent the spread of COVID. Um, but what I keep hearing is parents can and should still send their kids to school in masks. Um, and that can, that can help if whether wherever you're getting COVID, whether it's outside of the school, um, outside of work, you can take steps to not be spreading it when you are back in those environments. Right. And our um, state's rates of vaccinations amongst school-aged youth is still very low. Um, I I don't recall the the numbers. Last I checked, it was about seven and a half percent for ages five to 11 and uh, definitely higher for adolescents, but well below 50 percent. So that's an additional factor for for these teachers and employees who are coming into work as many of these students are unvaccinated. So Dana, I just want to say thank you for coming in and talking with us this week. To our listeners, thanks for joining us this week. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahomans subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.